Dear Asian Girl, For Asian Girls, By Asian Girls. Hi everyone, welcome to Dear Asian Girl. This is Alina speaking. Um, today I am with a very special guest. Um, and unfortunately, Jen was not able to make it for this episode, but we will still have a very great time regardless. <laughs> um, so for today's episode, we will be covering, you know, just the themes of um, debunking the myth of not all men. Um, and so I wanted to quickly um, give a little trigger warning before we get into this episode, because this episode will be covering um, things regarding sexual assault, harassment, um, domestic abuse, and um, a lot more stuff. So if this is um, triggering for you, I suggest skipping this episode. Um, but with that being said, I will have our wonderful guests introduce themselves. Hi, my name is Casey Lee. I use she, her pronouns. I'm currently based in Oregon, but in the fall, I'll be moving over to the state of New York for college, which is pretty exciting. You can find me and my anti-sexual violence work at Space to Speak and the Restless Network. At Space to Speak, I do social media stuff, um, and I also lead their healing nights. So if you ever want to come down to those, you can do that as well. And at Restless Network, which is pretty new, I am the community manager. So I just kind of do logistical things on their app. That's awesome. So this is actually my first time meeting with Casey. So I literally have no idea going into this outside of her work with Space to Speak. Um, so Casey, do you want to give a little introduction about like who you are, like what you enjoy? And I know you mentioned you're going to New York um, for college soon, which is very, very exciting. Um, so do you know where you're headed yet? What do you want to study? Like, you know, just general questions, of course. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm going to Cornell University as an American studies major. Um, I haven't determined my minor yet, but I was thinking of Spanish. So I'll be going over there for the next four years, which is super exciting, a bit scary. Yep. So I'm a first generation Korean American and I'm from a really small town in rural Oregon. I'm in like the middle of wine country. So growing up, my all of my friends have been white because my town is predominantly white so I think that really shaped my experience and kind of my identity as an Asian. Um, I'm also a survivor of sexual assault and that's kind of how I got started in doing anti-sexual violence work but in the past I've also done racial justice work. I worked on the Measure 110 um, campaign which was a campaign that decriminalized drugs which was pretty pretty dope it passed in November but I think going forward I really want to focus on anti-sexual violence so hopefully after college I can continue doing the work that I'm doing now but maybe at like a bit of a larger scale. Um, no that's awesome and yeah so I'm also from a predominantly white town so I totally feel what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. Um, would you say there's like not a lot of conversation surrounding sexual assault, like in your, um, racial community and also your sort of, um, community like in Oregon as well? Um, for sure, very little to none in like the Korean community that I'm a part of. I used to go to like a Korean church, like an hour away from where I live. I don't anymore. Um, but when I did participate in that community, was a part of that community, we never really talked about sexual assault. And I think that might have a connection to Christianity itself. But I think outside of that, just in the area that I live, it's also pretty right leaning as well. So 
I think even just looking at where I've grown up, there has been not a lot of conversation, which is disappointing. But I think in Oregon, if we're just looking at our state, I, I do think that a lot has changed within the past couple of weeks, kind of out of the blue. Um, I just noticed more people at different schools coming out with their experiences. Now that they were graduating, they felt like it was a good time, which I thought was, you know, really powerful. So I think really up until the last week, just looking at the state of Oregon itself, there was little conversation, but thankfully I think that will change now and kind of set a precedent for the future. Yeah, so would you say your, the lack of like, um, sort of speaking about sexual assault and sexual violence in your area is what motivated you to join um, organizations like Space to Speak um, and sort of other organizations that are social media based that focus on these issues. Is that part of what motivated you to sort of put your activism outside of just your local area? I definitely think that's a part of it um, because I know for sure that if there would have been some conversation about sexual assault or maybe just a better comprehensive version of sex ed. I think that my experience as a survivor would have been a lot different in that it wouldn't have been as difficult as it was. But I think generally speaking, one of the main driving forces behind joining Space to Speak and Restless is honestly because this work was very empowering to me. It made me feel like I could you know, continue to be an activist and being a writer and, you know, be a student and all these other things in addition to being a survivor. Um, so I would say that was like the biggest kind of reason why I decided to enter this work. But I definitely think that my entire experience as a whole would have been different if my community would have been different. Yeah, no, I completely understand that because I live in Idaho, which is you can imagine not like yeah. the greatest area so I totally get what you're saying because there's very and you mentioned sex education which I think is a great point because sex education is lacking especially in Idaho and I'm sure in other states as well obviously but I think that plays a very large role and you know the awareness regarding sexual assault and sexual violence um because teaching consent is a very key part of sex education so I mean, I, I'm pretty sure I missed my sex education class because it was because I was traveling, but also I don't think I missed out on a lot. So I think sex education is definitely an important uh, factor in that. Um, and so before we get any further, do you want to talk a little bit about um, Space to Speak and sort of your role and what the organization does as a whole, um, just so people can get some context on that? Yeah, so Space to Speak is a really wonderful organization specifically based in the United States, but we have a bunch of people who are international who are also part of our team, but all of our work is predominantly focused on connecting survivors with each other to create community and also kind of spread the conversation around consent. Um, Space to Speak, I think one of our biggest resources at Space to Speak that really make us unique is our survivor community, which is a discord that's open to allies and survivors. And it's a really beautiful place where we have all made connections and relationships with one another. I mentioned earlier that we also have our healing nights, which is another really great resource as well. But I think generally, if you want to find us, you can find us on Instagram. We're pretty active there. Or you can find us on our website. Our Instagram handle is space to speak org, and I'm 90% sure that our website is also space to speak.org. Um, 
So yeah, that's kind of like our ongoing resources, but a lot of the work that we do on social media, we participate in campaigns with Survivor Love Letter um, and Safe Bay and a couple of other organizations. And we have like little fun, like mental health check-ins every single week and Survivor Spotlights that you can also find on our Instagram too. Um, that's awesome. So how long have you been a part of the organization and what exactly does your role entail? So I've been the graphic designer, one of the graphic designers there since last August, last summer. I think it was last August specifically. And then I recently took up the role of social media manager. Uh, so what I do is I make graphics and plan out the month for social media a while ago, uh, I also worked on the rebrand because we went under like a little rebrand period in January of this year. I also respond to comments and DMs and kind of just like brainstorm content and campaigns too. That sounds great. So I know that the way that we found out about you is actually through your post that you made on Space to Speak, which was actually about... Um, I believe about the hashtag not all men. So very related to our topic, which is very fun. Um, so kind of getting more into um, the topic itself. So um, Casey and I will be talking about the idea of educating your son um, in response to things like not all men and just in general debunking that myth because um, this sort of hashtag has resurfaced um, as a response to um, women speaking up about women and non-binary individuals speaking up about um, sexual violence that they have faced. But the hashtag not all men, for those of you who are not too sure about, it actually came from the phrase not all men are like that, which was actually a statement that was used to target generalized um, uh, claims or uh, prejudice towards men. So it is regularly used as sort of a defense, um, I want to say, on behalf of men when uh, women are outspoken, women or non-binary individuals are outspoken about their experiences with um, things outside of just sexual violence. And I know the sort of hashtag um, is very, from my point of view, is very I want to say belittling because it sort of speaks over survivors' experiences, as well as just the validity of the, their um, outspokenness. So I kind of want to get your thoughts on it, Casey, just because I know you are very um, informed on it based off of the post that I saw that you organized on your immediate thoughts about um, the hashtag not all men and sort of what that means to you as someone who is in um, the activism space in regards to sexual violence. So I think not all men as the hashtag, it very much is a rebuttal against people's experiences with sexual assault. They're honestly just within the, the conversation of sexual assault and sexual violence in general. Um, and I think the reason why everybody is so quick to use, or not everybody, but I would say mostly men are so quick to fall back on not all men. I think if you look historically, whenever women's issues are talked about, oftentimes the focus will be drawn away from women and on to men and I think that's it's what it's doing again in this situation as well if somebody comes out with their experience with sexual assault and you say not all men are like that what you're doing is you're absolving yourself from responsibility and absolving other men from responsibility by saying 
that not everybody is like that. And I think the key implication that that has on sexual violence in general and kind of society's relationship to sexual violence is that it completely ignores the fact that in order to dismantle systems of sexual violence we see today, everybody needs to do the work. That includes men, that includes women, that includes survivors, non-binary people. Everybody has work to do because this is a very systemic thing and it's something that's so ingrained into our culture. So by shifting the focus of the conversation away from survivors and what they need, not only will progress just not happen because we don't know what survivors need, but I think more importantly, what it does is that it makes it so that there is no way for progress to ever happen because we're only focusing on the things that men are doing correctly and we're shifting the blame away from men when honestly, I think a part of the blame should be on men since men are predominantly um, tend to be abusers. And so not only does it harm the survivor by invalidating their experience and saying that that was one guy, but that's not all of us, but it, it really absolves blame and it shifts away responsibility to simply trust women. Um, so th those are my like immediate thoughts on it. It honestly just is a really harmful and defensive response to, I guess, avoid responsibility. Yeah, I think you phrased that really well because I think from my understanding, like I see this really frequently, um, specifically in the sexual assault um, uh, like community. Um, whenever someone is outspoken about their sexual assault or the violence that they have faced in the past, men do use that as a defense to be like, oh no, well, not all men are like that because I'm not like that or so whoever isn't like that. So I think I've seen this with several, like there's several examples of this. And another one I would say would be when women are talking about um, their experiences with rape. And a lot of the times men would be like, well, men are raped too. And it's like, we weren't saying that they weren't. We were just trying to highlight another um, issue specifically that's targeting women and non-binary individuals. So I think there's there's a lot of overlap with that. And I think um, the hashtag itself, as you mentioned, like it really does not create any progress in the space because if we are not actively um, addressing where we are at fault or the flaws that we have, then we are not making any progress. So I think um, you phrased that really well because I think the, the hashtag itself is used as a defense and, and really like, like we understand that, yeah, not all men are like that, but like be, by, by generalizing that and trying to defend the actions rather than addressing the issue as a whole, we really are not making any progress and not going like forward in this sort of space at all. Um, so I, I think that's um, a great sort of explanation of it. Um, and then I think in regards to like not all men, kind of going into more like the history of it, there was a specific incident where this phrase was used. Um, I want to say this was the first incident, um, which was actually which actually took place in Bangalore in India when there were several reports of mass molestation and assault during one of their New Year celebrations. So this is kind of when the hashtag itself resurfaced, um, um, like on Twitter and social media. Um, and I think we see more of this hashtag right now. Um, and, but, but it has been used previously, um, but not a lot of people are aware about that. So during this incident, the hashtag was resurfaced, um, and it drew a lot of anger out of, 
um, feminists in India and a lot of frustrated women because it was used to um, rebut the hashtag yes all women. So this hashtag yes all women comes from I believe the 97% um, sort of statistic that was surfacing. I don't know if you're familiar with that. Um, do you want to speak a little bit on that and just sort of how not all men was used as a rebuttal? Yeah, so I think the 97% was a statistic that came out after the death of Sarah Everard, um, because right when that happened just a few months ago, that hashtag not all men started resurfacing all over again. And I think that will continue to happen whenever, you know, these international or even national incidences of violence continue to happen. But um, and then more people started spreading the 97% of women in, I think it was the United Kingdom had experienced sexual harassment. Um, and I honestly think that there definitely is like a difference between sexual harassment and sexual assault that I sometimes think gets washed over within the conversation of sexual violence as a whole. Like oftentimes, on TikTok specifically, I'm not sure why, I would see this like back and forth between people trying to say that like, like mixing up the terminology in such a way that like it was really unproductive. Like people would say, yes, all women. And then someone would say, not all women experience sexual assault. And it would just be like co-opting each other's language in such a way that didn't really make sense. And I honestly think made people less inclined to actually want to learn about, you know, why the phrase not all men really is bad. But I definitely do think that, you know, it is true that all women do have the fear of whenever they go outside or whenever they're participating in activity of being, you know, the next target, the next victim, the next statistic, and men don't have that. And I think yes, all women at the end of the day does do a really good job at highlighting kind of that lifestyle distinction in, in, in regards to both sexual harassment and just fears of sexual assault in general. Um, but I will say I've always kind of had my own qualms with it because I felt like it really just informed or enforced it, a very heteronormative way of looking at anti-sexual violence work. And I also think that just like these really short phrases that are so repostable have really missed a lot of nuance a lot of the time. So I do think that Yes All Women does highlight really important aspects of, you know, gender dichotomy within society and within patriarchal society. But I definitely do think that it shouldn't be the center of anti-sexual violence work, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think you make a really good point about sort of the idea of like these short phrases becoming like easy to become trends because I think that's so true because you can't sort of like the entire issue of sexual assault you cannot encompass in just a short hashtag like by saying yes all women um and so you mentioned that it's very heteronormative do you want to sort of elaborate on that just um I'm just interested in getting your perspective on that no yeah I definitely like through space to speak a lot of my peers and counterparts are not like a cis woman or a cis man. And so we have these conversations. I think it's so important to realize how historically the conversation around sexual assault 
is predominantly led by cis white women. And it, it leaves out this really key point of intersectionality because I think at the end of the day, you're never going to be able to get to this point where all people, including women and non-binary folks feel safe until you're able to incorporate all of these voices. And I also think that on top of that, when we fail to consider queer survivors and when we fail to consider Black survivors and Asian survivors, what we're ultimately doing is that we're never going to fully, I guess, solve the problem because when we're looking at sexual violence and the way that it manifests in reality, there are always these intersections with sexuality, with gender identity, with race. And if we completely ignore those three things and kind of approach the problem as if everybody is cis and white and a woman, we're never going to actually get where we need to be, if that makes sense. So I, I, I really think that it's so important to, but that when we do speak, we're not speaking in such a way that we're only talking about cis white women. Because I think in the Me Too movement, when it first happened within Hollywood, that was rich cis white women. And it didn't, it, I honestly feel like more progress could happen if we were to include more identities of people and more identities of survivors. So, yeah. Yeah, and I think um, discussing the intersectionality, like the importance of it in the sexual assault space is really um, is really important to sort of make more progress because if you really think about it, like the hashtag itself, yes, all women was primarily and at first used in incidents in India regarding South Asian women being um, facing mass cases of sexual assault. And not a lot of people know about that, but a lot of people do know about um, uh, Sarah's case in the UK and she is a white woman. And of course her incident is horrible and disgusting, but I, I, I myself notice more social media presence regarding this this hashtag and, and the usage of it. Um, due to her case and so I, I think that's important to mention and in regards to your um, community and uh, um, space to speak how have you guys emphasized the importance of intersectionality um, and why is that an important part in your organization because from what I've noticed a lot of organizations especially um, social media based they fail to um, they fail to implement an intersectional approach to their activism. So I'm just curious to learn more about the organization that you work with and sort of how much more intersectional you guys are trying to um, make the space itself. Yeah, so it's Space to Speak. What I really love about the organization is that we value diversity, not only on our team, but I think within our community, whenever we are working on campaigns we try to include as many people as possible and if that campaign is kind of dedicated if like for example if it was for AAPI Heritage Month and we were doing a project or a post we always try to ensure that the person who is spearheading that campaign belongs to that community so like we're planning some stuff for pride and we're ensuring that everybody who's creating content and who really whose voices are the loudest coming from Space to Speak are people who are queer and who are a part of the LGBTQIA community. So I think that I really appreciate in regards to our team and how we actually do work. But I think in general, looking at the survivor community and 
the healing nights, all of the people who are a part of that, we try to guarantee are not all, you know, cis white women. And we try to be as inclusive as possible when we're inviting people to those events and we're trying to outreach to various people to come and like use that resource. Um, that sounds really amazing and very refreshing to hear that organizations specifically like social media based are focusing more on, you know, intersectional approaches. Um, because I, I've noticed like that's been a fault in the Gen Z activism space primarily. So it's nice to hear that space to speak is sort of emphasizing that. Um, so kind of back to the hashtag not all men. Um, so I think a couple points to address about that in regards to like the history of it is that it was actually uh, firstly used um, in 2011, I believe, by feminists to make memes about men. So it wasn't actually used as a defense um, at first, uh, but though so it was actually used as um, in a tweet by uh, Safika um, Hudson, um, I believe in 2013, it was uh, where she used the hashtag to make a sort of joke about men trying to center themselves in conversations. So um, it's interesting to see how that sort of, that we've kind of moved from this different position of make, like using it as a joke from like the female perspective and now to being used as a defense for men to sort of protect their image. So I did actually have a question for you in regards to like the hashtag itself and specifically like men's response um, in using it. So I'm curious uh, what your perspective is on the culture of it and why you would, why you would, um, what your perspective is on men's sort of defense and their immediate defense, like where that comes from. Because from what I've experienced having conversations about sexual violence and assault within my own community, men get very defensive immediately. Um, and I'm sort of curious what you think the origin of that defense mechanism would be. Um, just like general thoughts works. <laughs> Um, that's a really good question and I feel like honestly like if we're looking at society I'm going to talk specifically about the United States since I live in the United States but when we're looking at you know U.S. history there's this been this constant battle between what women can and cannot do and what men can and cannot do and for such a long time men have stood in this position of superiority in kind of such a way where they don't really experience as much scrutiny for the things that they do, whether it be in small ways or in big ways. So I think society has already kind of conditioned men to believe that they do not belong in a position of scrutiny and that they are in the right. Um, and I think beyond that, when not all men became like a hashtag specifically used by men as a defense mechanism, I think it was just so easy to pick up because it's like this short hashtag, but more than that, it's like technically right. Like we understand that technically not every single man on the entire world is an abuser. And I think because there is that like technical validity, even though it really ignores nuance and like societal context I think people have started to rely on that because when people talk about sexual assault it does put men in a place of scrutiny and that's a position that they've never had to be in before and so when you put you know this entire community in such an awkward situation where they have to take responsibility for years and years worth of harm that they're doing it of course they're going to be defensive about it 
no one has ever said that men need to take responsibility for stuff like this. Like we're barely starting to have conversations about consent and how it actually works. Um, so I think not only are people just so deeply conditioned to believe that men should never be in this position, but when we do, you know, have that push, there's going to be that like pull against it and they're going to want to be defensive because if they aren't, then they're going to have to take responsibility for the ways in which that they perpetuate sexual violence. And that's going to take, I think, a lot of work on their part to really dismantle and be critical about every single thing that they do. And I think that's scary for our community who has never really had to do that before. Um, yeah, and I think it's kind of similar to the idea of like white fragility, because as you mentioned, like throughout society and like our history, um, in regards to spaces like this, they've never been held accountable. Um, and so when they are put in a position of, you know, given statistics, given whatever it may be, and sort of in a position of being called out for their actions, they're, they're very, very much like not, they're not very likely to accept that that's the truth. Um, and so I guess, and, it, and like, I mean, I totally get what you're saying, because like, it really comes from the smallest sort of actions we, um, and like the dialogues that we have with boys, because it even comes from like the phrases like, oh, boys will be boys, you know, he's just a boy, whatever, because like little things like that sort of add on to the um, violence that women and non-binary individuals face in regards to sexual violence. So um, I guess from your perspective, what, what would you say is sort of um, the start to fixing this issue? Um, because I would say from my perspective, it has to come from like um, the beginning. And <clears throat> as we mentioned earlier, it comes from educating your son. So um, where would you say we need to begin conversations in order to prevent this sort of defense coming from men in regards to sexual violence? I think it would be nice like in the most ideal world to see these nuanced intersectional conversations to happen and for people to really confront the ways that they perpetuate cycles of sexual violence. And I don't think that this is, you know, an exclusive task to men. I think there are plenty of things that women can do. There are plenty of things that non-binary people can do. There are plenty of things that we all can do because I think that the reason why sexual violence in this large scale has been able to remain a continuity all throughout history is because it's so deeply ingrained into our society and with every new innovation like technology that comes up it'll continue to find a way to proliferate itself within those spaces so i think the one of the biggest things that people really need to do is sit down with themselves and criticize all the ways in which they perpetuate violence and to start dismantling that from their behavior and their mindsets and their thought process. And then most importantly, when they go out to listen in on these conversations, to listen in on the conversations that center the voices of survivors and, you know, not only white survivors, but survivors of various sexual orientations and gender identities and racial backgrounds as well. Um, and I think when we're finally able to have productive conversations that really consider nuance and we really consider the reality of the situation and the way that 
people's lives look today because of sexual violence will actually be able to get somewhere because I think the biggest thing is that sometimes the conversation can be so circular with stuff like not all men and it just won't get anywhere and I I think it, it causes really negative us them dichotomy within society like women versus men and I I I really don't think that progress will ever happen like that because this is not a women's issue. This is an everybody issue. So I think really just having these nuanced conversations and also just individuals being really critical of their behavior and kind of how they do play into anti or how they play into sexual violence. Yeah, I agree. And I think it definitely comes from like Firstly, like the upbringing of men in society and also just the culture that's being perpetuated around us because, and I mean, if I'm being completely honest, like I have myself biases in regards to this because of the way that, you know, violence, sexual violence has been portrayed to me in society. Like, for example, when someone is a victim of um, any form of sexual violence, immediately people assume, oh, well, what what was that person wearing? What did they do? Were they like walking late at night by themselves? What Like whatever the dumb <laughs> excuse might be, but we've never centered the question of why did that person, why did the abuser do that to the victim? If that makes sense, like why did this person choose to violate another individual? But instead we are sort of um, immediately jumping to questions about like, oh, well, what, what was this person wearing? What did they do? So I think it definitely has to do with like the culture around us and also being critical of ourselves, like you mentioned, because like that's, and that's seen in like all sort of like social justice spaces, um, but it's it's a difficult step to criticize yourself and sort of addressing your biases. Um, and so I think that's also part of the reason why men are so quick to jump to like, <laughs> is this sort of defense um, in regards to sexual violence? And I also think part of the time they do they do know that it is, you know, like technically not all men, but they do know that the majority of men are, um, you know, abusers. So I think that's also part of the reason why they jump to these quick defenses. Um, And so I guess with that, what would you, why do you think people have so easily adopted phrases like, like not all men, yes, all women, in order to sort of open up conversation about like sexual violence? I think because it's so easy and it's so like palatable to social media as a platform like the hashtag not all men just really started on Twitter from like the meme but it really took off on Twitter when men started using it too it took off on Instagram after Sarah Everard's death and I think responses like that like yes all women kind of use that same I guess, strategy when it comes to, you know, talking about sexual assault. And I think, I do really think that, you know, yes, all women does have its benefits. And I think it's, it's really good to sometimes to, you know, start these conversations and bring awareness to certain issues using these like, you know, short, small, um, palatable phrases. But I think at the end of the day, that doesn't mean anything if we're not having legitimate conversation. And I think that is where it kind of starts falling apart because sexual violence is such a multifaceted issue. Like if you pick up any part of our society, I honestly feel like there will be a connection to sexual violence. Like if you think of video games, like the other day I was reading this article about how the 
video games portray women is linked to sexual violence and like pornography and media and how everybody is so quick to sexualize women's bodies like even I growing up learned to sexualize other women's bodies and be like why is she wearing that like that's a really low v-neck and you know just if we're looking at all aspects of it there's so much to talk about and I I think it's definitely not conversation that people always want to engage in but that's okay I honestly just think that at one point we do need to start having these conversations but beyond that we need to start internalizing that into our own lives so while I do think yes all women is a good way to start the conversation and bring awareness I I really do think that it has to go beyond awareness Um, and I guess that kind of with not all men is a different case in that it does kind of use the same platform as yes all women because it's just so easy and short and palatable for social media but it does I guess spread a really negative message in comparison to yes all women um yeah I totally agree on the basis of like doing more than like awareness because I've seen this a lot with social media activism people are very quick to you know repost an infographic or take part in a hashtag or like whatever it may be, but really we have to go beyond raising awareness because if we're only raising awareness, we literally just create like an echo chamber of like like-minded individuals who like agree with what we're saying. So it has to go beyond that. Um, and so I definitely agree with that. And I think I've seen that with like the Me Too movement as well um, because it has, and we kind of touched on this before, it has sort of created a very one-sided um sort of path regarding sexual violence and it has uh because it was originally started by a black woman um and so it's I believe Tarana Burke um started it who was uh who was outspoken about um her sexual violence and so I think with what you've mentioned regarding like white rich women in Hollywood who have taken over that hashtag and because then that ties into like raising awareness and also creating more intersectionality in the space. Um, And you also touched on a little bit about like criticizing your own self um, and also being taught um, like just the culture around us by sexualizing women and how that takes part in um, sort of the uh, sexual violence rates that they face. Um, And like, even for myself, like you were talking about the video games, which I literally had no idea that those were linked. But as you mentioned, like really, like every little thing in our society is linked to the sort of culture surrounding sexual violence. Um, And something that I've realized recently is I'm like a very big Marvel movie fan. Like I love Marvel. And then something that I've recently realized is like the female superheroes are so extremely sexualized compared to the men. And that totally, like like you really think about like these films are supposed to be mainly um, targeted towards younger children as a demographic. Like why are we implementing these stereotypes of women into these like superhero films like it really doesn't make sense and and I think those like those are just some examples of how deeply ingrained it is in our society um but like kind of going back to that like how would you say we need to move on from this like how do we move forth from such a um from such a like culture that's so like this negative culture that's so ingrained in society because it is so deep like how do we make like uh, progress through that I guess I think a big thing is really paying attention and being attentive 
and I can start with like you I don't I don't really think that you know we need to start looking at everybody but I think you know start with yourself like growing up I had you know like got friends that were guys and you know I don't know if this is a thing everywhere maybe it's just like a weird Oregon thing but they would have this phrase that was like the friend zone doesn't exist and it seems super innocent and it's just and it was just like a thing that if a girl rejected you you can just keep talking to her and at one point she'll like develop feelings free and it always just kind of like a thing like you just like was like oh okay you guys are a bit weird but if you really dig into it that conditions people to not listen to when women say no or when anybody says no so I think things like that things like the media that you're consuming like the other day I was watching this movie that I hadn't watched in a while I don't remember what it was and it sexualized women so much and I was like what is happening and you know even like with myself and how I talk to myself or if you know you're talking to a partner who's a guy like if you have a boyfriend like if he says something that's kind of you know iffy like I think I hear all the time in my friends relationships that a guy will be upset with something that their girlfriend posts instead of being upset with the way that guys choose to react to that you know like I think it really comes down with looking at your own life as the first thing the second thing would be if you're not a survivor listen to survivors and that not only is listen to their story if they choose to share their story but listen to what they need from you um and I think the third thing is to include men in the conversation and that doesn't mean like give them the microphone bite please don't give them the microphone <laughs> like include men in the conversation because they have so much to learn too and that's not like let's bring men into our safe spaces at all but talking to the men in your life like I sit down with my boyfriend sometimes and I'm like so let's you know talk about this and let's talk about how what like you can do differently and what I can communicate to you that I need as a survivor or maybe let's you know go into this because I think at the end of the day like I, I remember after Sarah Everard's death I was talking to one of my friends and I was like why can't I just get guys to care like what why can't I just get them to listen and have them just like shut up and like listen to me and he was saying it's just because you're a girl and it was really tough to hear but I sat on it for a while and it's like true and as an Asian woman living in a white town like I know that there's to a certain point I will not get everybody to listen to me and that's just the way it is I can't force them to listen to me um and I was talking to one of my friends at Space to speak about it. And she was saying how sometimes you need to reach out to the men you trust in your life and ask them to start those conversations in like circles of men. Cause I think it's so true that like, just because you're a woman, I think you're already walking into this conversation at a disadvantage. And that's a disadvantage that other men don't have. And I remember talking to my boyfriend about it. And I was like, so if you hear anything, can you please speak up? Um, because they're way more likely to listen to you than they'll ever listen to me and like I hope that by him going in and having that conversation obviously not speaking over survivors that maybe more people will be encouraged to actually listen and want to do change so I think 
you know, talking to the people in your life and really just including them and asking them to be a part of this and to do the work, whether that be criticizing themselves and their behavior or, you know, reaching out to people if they are doing something wrong is important too. And I think that's something that we always kind of forget. And I, I know that a lot of people disagree with me about asking the men in your life to, you know, go out and say something if they hear something negative. But I really do think that everybody needs to be a part of anti-sexual violence work because everybody has responsibility, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I think like specifically what you said about how as like an Asian woman just going into these conversations, like you know that you will not be listened to by like everyone and not everyone will sort of listen to what you have to say is it's upsetting, but it, it really is true. And I think what you mentioned about encouraging men in our lives to have these conversations with other men in their circles is so important. And it also just emphasizes like the lack of support women have in like in really in any space because like in reality like and I've noticed this in like several there's like several examples I can give you but like just like the fact that like people will not listen to what you have to say unless it comes from a man's mouth which is just like it just makes me so mad like like really like like what like what I like in regards to like anti-sexual violence work like what you have to say as a woman which you are which it predominantly affects this issue like what you have to say will not be listened to unless it comes from a man's mouth is like it's like I don't know I just think it highlights like how deeply ingrained this issue is um and I think sort of engaging in conversation with like men you trust is important as well because they really do have so much more societal power um than women of color do um, mainly because of the power that society gives them. Um, and so kind of touching more on, you know, like the Asian experience itself, have you noticed any sort of backlash within the Asian community in regards to like your anti-sexual violence work? Is there some sort of like, um, like ingrained um, misogynistic and like sexist mindsets? Because I know from my perspective, there definitely is. So um, if you want to speak on that. Yeah. Um, I think that specifically in regards to my work, not very many people have responded to it. And that means like, like negative response, I guess. I have had a couple of people be like, this is pointless. And I was like, okay, that's kind of rude. And then like some other people like argue with the necessity for the work to even like happen. Um, but I think in regards to my identity as an Asian woman, I really do think that more Asian voices need to be highlighted when we're talking about survivorship because I didn't even realize this until like last year, but if you are Asian, you automatically have very different hindrances that other people don't experience and other survivors don't experience. Like if we're thinking of the Asian fetish, that is crazily in, ingrained so deeply within society and that's something that you know other survivors don't have to deal with and that's okay but that's that doesn't mean that it's something that we shouldn't consider 
Um, but I also think if we're talking about sex stigma within Asian culture, that is so huge. And I think that's such a huge reason why even in like South Korea, for example, I'm South Korean, there is so much assault that happens. Um, and model minority myth, that's another good hindrance that Asians uniquely go through. Um, and I think even when you're looking at statistics for the percent of, of Asian women who've experienced assault, there's a huge like gap, like there's a range, it's like 20 to 60%. And the fact that Asian women themselves don't speak up about survivorship, very rarely do they ever. Um, and I think there are just so many things in the way that is so catered to the Asian survivor experience that I really hope that going onward, people will be courteous of that and willing to learn about, you know, our experiences and not only with Asian women, but with, you know, Black women and non-binary people as well. Um, but I think specifically in regards to my experience, I feel like I wish people would talk about that stuff more because it definitely is really emotionally burdening to be like go out on your own and have to search for that information. Like I kind of wish that people would talk about it just as easily as they can talk about other aspects of survivorship. Um, yeah, and I think like in regards to like the um, sort of Asian uh, fetishization and like sort of the stereotypes that are portrayed in media, those add so much to the sexual violence rates for Asian women. Um, and I think that's like another, that goes back to our conversation about like culture and how ingrained it is. And like, we literally, as we mentioned, we see it in media, we see it like perpetuated everywhere. So it's, so I like to me in my community, I'm, I'm Pakistani American, so I'm South Asian. It's very similar. It's a very um, internalized sexist culture where we're, where women are just taught to, you know, keep their heads down, not make any sort of disturbances or cause any trouble and just, you know, be like a nice housewife, you know, cook and clean for your husband, whatever. And so I think that adds to the sort of impact that Asian um, sexual violence victims face, because as you mentioned, it's a completely different experience from other, um, from other survivors. And so um, I think it's, in, and that goes into our conversation about like Me Too movement and how sort of these sexual, anti-sexual violence movements have been, um, taken over by white women and why it's so important to sustain this intersectional approach to it because like every single person's experience is different just in general but if you add on the sort of um, factors like race and ethnicity and also sexual orientation then that completely changes everyone's sort of experience and how they um and how they um and how they grow from their experiences if that makes sense um so yeah, I think like in the Asian community, there definitely needs to be more conversations about firstly allowing women to speak up about these issues and also just sex education and conversations regarding like sexuality and sex in general. Um, I think that also plays a role, um, definitely so. Yeah, for sure. And it's, it's just like, so like disheartening sometimes to know that there are so many like people who will go their entire lives because I think a part of the experience as a survivor is it's really easy to blame yourself for what happened and I think when I started to learn about Asian fetish and how it connects to violence and like video games and pornography and how that connects to violence and like all of these other things that are connected to my identity it was so 
like empowering to know those things because I think by acknowledging that these systems exist it kind of pushes you to understand that it isn't your fault and I think that that kind of phase happens for most survivors so being able to fully acknowledge like what is at play how can what do other people need to do better it's just nice to know that that's something that's you know people are willing to talk about um so hopefully like going in the future I feel like more people will start to talk about it because I think especially after you know the rise in anti-Asian hate crimes more Asians have kind of taken the stage when it comes to activism and using their voice so yeah it's it's sad to to feel like you know there there have been so many people who went their entire lives or a majority of their lives not realizing you know how many things were against them and how many hindrances that they had that were not their own fault. Um, But I have faith that that will change hopefully within like the next couple of years. Um, Yeah, I agree. And I think, and as you mentioned, like sort of the movements with like um, anti-Asian hate um, sort of being given more um, like uh, space and also spotlight. I think that will also help as well in regards to encouraging survivors, Asian survivors to be more um, like uh, like understanding that the incident that they went through was not their fault. Because I think from what I've seen, like in my own community, a lot of the South Asian women who have experienced these incidents are not open about them and don't even want to accept that they have happened, which is the sort of internalized struggle that they have. And it's really sad to sort of think about that because they don't have the space to come to terms with a situation that they have experienced sexual violence or assault, and they're not given the appropriate like resources for that. So I think um, the future generations and Gen Z in regards to um, Asian sexual assault survivors is changing. So um, that is definitely reassuring to hear as well. So in regards to like the Asian community, I think there's this sort of different response that Asian men themselves have to um, sexual violence. Uh, And I think that's very different from like the response that um, non-Asian men have. Cause like, at least in my experience as a South Asian individual, South Asian men are very likely to take this sort of defensive stance um and I think it's a lot harder to have conversations regarding sexual violence and preventing sexual violence with Asian men um because of the added factor of race as an identity so I I guess from like your understanding of this where would you say we should sort of implement these conversations and sort of how should we implement these conversations um because I think a lot of the times Asian men have this sort of more tendency to not be open to dialogue regarding sexual violence yeah no oh my god I could talk about how like Asian men and sexual violence for for days because I noticed that within I'll take for example the debate space the debate space is pretty predominantly white and Asian and there's this period of time when some debaters came out with their experiences of assault against other debaters. And in in this one specific instance, it was an East Asian debater. And he was pretty like good at what he did. Um, What he did being debate. Like he was a pretty competitive debater. And I remember so many people being like, oh my God, there's no way he did that. Like he 
plays piano, has a bunch of volunteer hours, you know, is a good debater. And that really just connects to the model minority myth and how it's so ingrained in Asian society, but also within culture in the United States that whenever instances of sexual assault come out and the perpetrator or the assaulter is an Asian man, people are so quick to not believe it because we're so conditioned to see Asians in general, but I guess specifically Asian boys as these like upstanding, successful, you know, do good person. So I think that when we approach these conversations, you know, it can be difficult because I feel like just looking at, you know, our parents' generation, like it's, it's so different because like my parents' generation never had an opportunity to have conversations that are taking place today. So I really do think that it can be difficult, but honestly, I think my just advice would be to start with the people that are closest to you and to start those conversations. If like you're comfortable with doing that, like I know that not all people are comfortable with doing that Um, and really just paying attention to why we treat Asian men so differently, why we absolve them for, you know, contributing to anti-sexual violence by acting like they're not a part of the problem when they are. So I think not only is it kind of really looking at it and looking at the way that it manifests in society through these, you know, multitude of different ways, but also having conversations with people that you know and with people that you trust, because, you know, there's definitely a lot of conversation to be had for sure within the Asian community specifically but I really do think that it just starts with understanding it because no no one talks about that enough and looking at who you're friends with and looking at your community and then really just having those conversations because it honestly may be better to have those conversations and maybe they don't really get anywhere the first time than to just not have any conversation at all because I can't imagine going up to one of my Asian guy friends and talking about this and then not thinking about it afterwards because it's such a huge thing that's never been talked about before so I think really just if you're comfortable with doing so having the courage to start those conversations and it can be in a really abrupt way like that's fine or it could be in a casual way like just being like hey you know have you ever thought about how Asian men contribute to sexual violence or like have you ever thought about you know xyz cases that you can most definitely find on the internet where Asian men were like assaulters and not much happened you know like really just whenever you're comfortable having this conversation, I think is important, really just starting them. I don't think there's a perfect formula for doing so, but it's better to do it and try than to not at all and have society continue the way it's been. Yeah, and like when you were talking about the model minority myth and how that plays a role in it, um, I it kind of reminded me of sort of one example of people not taking... Um, survivors who have experienced sexual assault violence from Asian men seriously it was um Aziz Ansari's cases of um the alleged alleged sexual violence um that he had perpetuated sorry I'm not speaking clearly today um and I think that's a good example because when his sort of um the cases came out about 
his sexual violence, I honestly wasn't surprised because I think the sort of culture that specifically South Asian men grow up in in the household adds to that um, sort of the idea of them not being able to do anything wrong and just the way that they are treated differently from their uh, from their sisters or the other women in their families. Um, and I think like it's important to mention how like Aziz Ansari, his entire career was not slightly impacted by sort of the survivors cases that came out. Um, and so I think like that entire incident, like I'm not the most informed on that, so I can't really speak too much on that. But I think that entire incident just shows how we need to have these conversations with Asian men in our communities. Because if you look at like the rates of domestic violence for specifically South Asian communities, it is extremely high. And like I've seen it in my own community, like the women face so much domestic abuse and violence and they are never given a platform or support because, oh, well, men can't do anything wrong. Oh, our South Asian men can't do anything wrong. You know, they're mama's boy, whatever, whatever. And so, and so I think that adds to the culture of it because, um, and because I think they're taught that they can't be put in a position of criticism and that kind of goes back to what we mentioned earlier. So I think it comes from like smaller actions in our community, but I think Asian men specifically need to sort of have these conversations regarding sexual violence because it's it adds to, as you mentioned, the um, violence that Asian women face. Um, I think the intersectional approach to sexual violence conversations needs to be, um, needs to be, um, I guess uh, is, is a significant part of it. Kind of moving on from there, um, going towards like educating your son, how would you say we should approach having more um, conversations regarding these specifically from the perspective of emphasizing like educating your son rather than like protecting your daughter, if that makes sense? <laughs> no, yeah, I think that this kind of shifting I don't want to say the workload, but shifting the work all on women to being on men too. Like I think educate your son, what it is saying pretty much is that instead of asking women to do something differently from like just existing, um, it asks men to do the work necessary and to change their harmful behavior rather than asking women to protect themselves from it. And I think that this kind of dynamic should be implemented in all parts of the conversation like I think a good example is I think I brought it up earlier is with like Instagram like instead of criticizing a girl for like posting some like slightly scandalous picture where they're like in a swimsuit be critical of how people are responding to that image like how men are responding to that image because that person is literally just existing like it's just a photo it's just their body why is it that we're saying oh my god don't post that for like ex like people are going to use it inappropriately people are going to steal it and catfish you know people are going to do all these disgusting things to that photo and instead be like why are we allowing men to respond like this with absolutely no repercussion? Like, I think this idea of just letting people exist and being critical of the behavior that perpetuates violence is so important. And like, I hear it with like self-defense tools too. Like somebody was like being critical of like the self-defense, like keychain, it has like the pepper spray and the window breaker. And they're like, 
that's so weird and like secretive because they were like designed like designed to look like different things and I was like in like why are we doing this like and I think that it's just so important to question whose behavior is actually animal and who's just existing because I think when we make that distinction the work that needs to be done is a little bit clearer and the progress that can be made and how we're going to get to that process or progress is a lot clearer and you know I think educating your son is super important I think you know by educating not only your son but of course like other men around you is a really good first step but I also think again like everybody has work to do to a certain extent and I think that's also important to know because I know like plenty of you know girls in my life who I think have said things that were harmful to other women I have too when it comes to like sexualizing bodies being critical of women for just existing like we all need to educate ourselves and I think really make that distinction for where work needs to be done and who who really needs to change their behavior who's not actually doing anything wrong yeah and like when you were talking about that I was like she's so right she's so right like you tell him girl and like it like reminded me of so many things like in so a couple examples like I so what I, I'm a competitive fencer. So when I would go to like competitions or whatever, I would wear spandex shorts underneath my fencing pants because they were like hella tight. And I was not about to just like simply wear an underwear under those because they're white. So I was like, I need to put shorts on. So um, I promise this is going somewhere inform- informative. So I would wear these spandex shorts and like people would be like, why are you wearing those shorts? Like, it doesn't look like people would like sexualize you, like you're wearing these spandex shorts. Like, and like, I look back at moments like that because like, obviously in my mind, it's been so ingrained to like not wear spandex, like Nike pro shorts anymore or whatever. And I look back at those moments and I'm like, why were we so critical of what like a 14 year old girl was wearing to a fencing competition rather than the way that these men would be responding to her wearing those if that makes sense so it's like really like creating this separation um between being critical of what a woman or non-binary individual is doing than being critical of how men are sexualizing them and responding to them that way so I think it's it's just like and like you mentioned that and like I'm thinking of like so many different examples of how easily these sort of things like slip our minds from having conversations about them in order to prevent sexual violence and like, you know, I don't care anymore. I'll wear Nike Pro shorts. Like, I don't care. But it's just like, it's just the idea that like what I'm wearing is questioned, but like not the response of like how men would like respond to me wearing that is questioned. So, and like you mentioned yourself, like it's sort of such an internalized thing that even women do it towards one another. And like, even myself, like I can catch myself being like, well, why would she wear that? Like, why would she post that on Instagram? Like men would like respond so horribly. Like, why am I caring about this woman just existing wearing a swimsuit rather than like caring enough about like how men are responding negatively towards that so I think like I think that's an important point as well because it's it's seen in like everyone it really is it's in and you know opening dialogue about that is important so I'm totally with you on that yeah and like I don't know I just think like specifically with like women for example like the number of conversations that I've had with like my girlfriends and they're like if you don't do this thing for your boyfriend that you don't want to do you're a bad girlfriend like it's your responsibility you have to do that for him like 
all girlfriends do that for their boyfriends and that's such like a common thing and like the other day I was watching I was on TikTok and I watched like there's like a sex in the city clip that came up from like the tv show and there's something like so like blatantly sexist and I was like oh my god girls and then there's just like I think with sororities too I think going into college I thought a lot about what communities I want to be a part of what types of things I want to do and I think people aren't critical enough about the role that women in Greek life can perpetuate sexual violence and like what are they doing when aren't they doing and what's missing from college campuses specifically when we're looking at Greek life because Greek life statistically has very high rates of sexual assault and perpetuates these like negative pieces of culture within schools and I think there's just there's so much and it's so easy to miss all these things because it's just so normalized and it's really honestly just it really comes down to just being critical about what you're doing and how you think this is impacting other people and and I think the Instagram one is a good example of how people have slowly over time shifted blame towards women and decided that women's bodies were scandalous to absolve women from that responsibility kind of like what not all men does so it really just comes down and sitting down with yourself and thinking deeply about how these things have been misconstrued and who is actually at fault and what actually needs to happen because I think we always miss that and it's like I understand like it's not like an angry thing, like you're, like I'm pissed that everybody didn't realize, but like, it, it's just something that we all need to take time to do. And I think that's a good point. And like, don't even get me started on Greek life. I swear to God, I, I would go off for days. Um, but like kind of going off of that, like, I think, and then like in terms of Greek life, like it's, it's like unbelievable to me. Like I have a cousin in a frat and like, please, it's so gross. Um, but not the point. He, he was talking to me about how um, sort of it's seen in sororities and fraternities, this sort of sexual violence culture being perpetrated. And one example he gave me was in sororities when you have to like, I don't know what the process is of getting in, but like when you do those oh, crazy activities, they make you do whatever. One of them was they, so this is in a sorority, they would make the girls sit on a washing machine and like the washing machine would move and wherever on their body would like jiggle like there would be like fat or whatever they would circle it and you would have to like exercise to get rid of that like I y'all can't see Casey's face but she's like so no I know that was my response I was like are you fucking kidding me like is that a thing like it seems so unbelievable to me but like if you really think about it like why are we trying to change the way women look in order to appeal to men or like in order to just seem more attractive and fit like a beauty standard because like that just oh my god I don't know and like things like like these little things add to like sexual violence and like it just it's unbelievable and like obviously that's seen in frats as well it's not just seen in sororities but the fact that it's so ingrained is just disgusting to me because it's just like it's upsetting because then you're like well we have such a long way to go in order to fix this issue like just it's seen in like every little thing so very disgusting example I hope I didn't ruin anyone's day by by saying that no oh my god that just like got me thinking about specifically with women like body image and what we deem as 
a good body. I'm using quotes. I just realized nobody can see that. I'm using quotes like a good body and a bad body because what you see too is when a when there is a plus size survivor, there's so much doubt, so much doubt. And they're always like, I've seen so many, like people saying ruthless things about like, like you should count yourself lucky and like terrible, terrible things like that. And it comes from women too, because they don't deem, you know, plus size women as value, like as beautiful and wanted and valuable. And it completely undermines their experiences. But on the other side of that coin, at the other extreme, like when somebody fits the beauty standard for bodies, people are like, of course that happened because you look like this. And it's, there's no in between. And it's just, it comes down to like, again, like women and men and non-binary, we really need to be so critical about the expectations that we hold for one another. Because I think that we like, I don't know, it's just like, it's so crazy. And I, I really do think that like women on social media need to do a better job at not enforcing some weird body standard and beauty standard and not deeming one thing as desirable and the other thing too desirable. You know, and it's just, it's everywhere. And it's, it's so crazy when you think about it, how, how, how so deeply ingrained it is. But I think it's important to have all of these realizations so that you can really do, like really change yourself and start implementing that change in other places too. Um, when you were mentioning body image and how that plays a role, I was like this, like we need to talk about this. I've noticed it myself and I'm not the most active in like the anti-sexual violence space, but I have noticed this too. Whenever there is a plus size individual or someone who is not fitting the Eurocentric beauty standards, who is a survivor of sexual violence, the people who comment on it are like unfucking believable. Like, sorry for swearing mom, but like they are unbelievable. Like people are commenting shit like, well, well, who would ever want to have sex with her? I doubt that. I doubt she was assaulted. She's so uh, whatever, right? And I'm like, like I don't know why people consider what someone looks like the, the validity of their allegation or assault. Like, why would you consider that a factor in in sort of listening and believing someone and believing a survivor? And also, as you mentioned, like even if someone is the beauty standard and and if they wear like provocative clothing or whatever it may be, people are like, well, obviously you would get sort of harassed or assaulted wearing something like that. I'm like clothing like why are we bringing clothing into it too like it's just I just think like there's so many factors to it as you mentioned and like it's just um and it takes like part in like both communities of like men and women and also um non-binary individuals as well so uh so this is actually something that I think is sort of applicable to like all uh, situations of like uh, social justice um spaces but how would you recommend being you know critical of your own actions while also not being like judgmental of your own actions because I think there's this sort of like fine line between creating progress by seeing where your faults are but also not being like sort of worried to address your faults because you don't want to be seen as like a bad person if that makes sense. (laughs) No yeah I once had this conversation with one of my guy friends and he a while ago had participated in this conversation that slut shamed another girl and he 
like it was this huge thing at the school he was calling the counselor's office and he was just like what is happening like he just didn't understand and he had talked to me a year after it happened because we had met like a year after it happened and he was like you know I don't know what to do I feel so guilty like please don't hate me for telling you this and I think what's so important to acknowledge is that just because you made mistakes and you make mistakes does not mean you're a bad person. Society, this is historical in that it, it's so deeply ingrained. And this is like years and years and years in the making. Like, I don't blame anybody for, you know, sex, like growing up sexualizing women. I don't blame any specific individual for, you know, like participating in, sexual in perpetuating sexual violence but I but there has to be that response and that's what the caveat that people take responsibility because it's okay if you don't like initially realize it at first I don't really think anybody does because we're so conditioned to behave the way that we do but if you're going to acknowledge it and not do anything and not accept responsibility then that's where the problem is like nobody is going to hate you for being a participant in society and for being conditioned by society the way virtually almost all of us were. And so I think it's important to know that like, it's, it's not because you're a terrible person. I feel like people are always so terrified of being a terrible person. Um, I would say that's with the exception of people who actually assault other people. Um, I may be biased, but like, <laughs> like individuals who unknowingly perpetuated sexual violence, who unknowingly did these things that do harm survivors, like nobody, I would bet that nobody's gonna like hate you. And you don't need to take all of this, like, I guess, guilt. You, what you need to do is just take responsibility and to change. Um, and that's just so important to learn because it's it's even more intimidating to want to change if you feel so guilty and you feel like everybody hates you for, you know, doing this certain thing. So I think just just learn. No, nobody's going to absolutely like hate you for the rest of your life. Like just learn because we're all in, I guess, a similar boat and that we all have work to do. Okay, so we covered a lot of different things, um, specifically the topic of debunking not all men and also movements like Me Too and how we need to be more intersectional in the anti-sexual violence space. Um, and, and also specifically the Asian community as well and sort of the culture that's being perpetuated there. Um, so with that being said, I will invite Casey to talk a little bit about potential like resources and sort of organizations um, doing anti-sexual, um, anti-sexual violence work. Um, and I know Space to Speak is a great one, so we can totally start there. Um, but kind of just for our listeners and also survivors themselves who are listening, how can we get involved in the space and sort of um, help out from our position? Yeah, so I'll start with space to speak because that's, you know, has a soft spot in my heart. But I would say that we try to publish content that is applicable for allies and in, in, in that they can learn from it. So if you want to kind of start on social media, because I know that's more accessible, definitely you can start by like following our Instagram. The survivor discord that I mentioned earlier is open to allies and we 
have like allies all the time ask questions there's this really sweet husband who like asks questions about how he can support his wife and it's it's just so beautiful to see allies you know wanting to do better so that's a really wonderful space that's also a really great space for survivors to ask for advice and talk about their experiences because it is predominantly survivors in the discord um the healing nights those are survivor only so if you feel more comfortable in that space there's that too I would say that Safe Bay is a really wonderful organization that you could follow and support their initiatives and their work the Every Voice Coalition they do policy work and legislation and that's also a really 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 good one to support as well Survivor Love Letter on Instagram is they publish love letters to survivors and kind of tries to foster an accepting community for survivors. That's a really great one. Um, those are the first three off the top of my head. But I think, yeah, those are a good, oh no, that was four, including Space to Speak. Those four are a good kind of like starting place. With that being said, where can we find you next, Casey? Because I know you will be doing amazing things at Cornell and also in um, the Space to Speak. So what is next? Uh, what is planned next for you? Because I know it's a lot. Um, in school, at Cornell, I, I'm going to continue doing work at Space to Speak and the rest of this network for sure. Um, you can also find me at Project Lotus. It's an organization dedicated to destigmatizing mental health for the Asian community. So I do some fun stuff there. Um, hopefully after I graduate, I'll continue doing anti-sexual violence work. That's kind of the goal that the path that I'm on right now. But if you really wanna stay connected or communicate, my DMs on Instagram are always open. My handle is at Casey Lee, but my name is spelled without the A. So it's just K-C-E-Y-L-E-E. -E -E, and I'm pretty active on there. So if you just think I'm super funny, you can follow my Instagram and keep up with me there. But for now, you mostly find me at the Restless Network, Space to Speak, and Project Lotus. And hopefully in the future, it'll be like that too. Awesome. And you guys should totally reach out to Casey um, for literally any of your questions or even to talk with her. You guys, she's so fun to talk with. Okay. And that's coming from someone who's currently talking to her. So um, sounds like a lot of um, amazing things you have planned and are doing right now. Good luck at Cornell, Miss Ma'am, going there soon. So I hope you will have a great, wonderful experience. And I will keep an eye out for you because I know you will continue to do amazing things. So thank you for joining me on Dear Asian Girl for this episode. Um, and again, y'all be sure to check out Space to Speak and also Casey's personal Instagram and all of the other amazing organizations she's a part of. But in the meantime, I will see y'all in the next episode. Thank you. Want more of Dear Asian Girl? You can find us everywhere on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Anchor. We're on everything. Can't get enough? Subscribe, follow, rate, review to get all the updates on the latest at DAG. Let us know your feedback and what we can do to improve. We also can be found on Instagram. Follow us at Dear Asian Girl to receive updates about our latest episodes and fun facts about the host. We'd love for you to reach out. DAG Dear Asian Girl, a podcast dedicated to share the stories of Asian girls everywhere. For the Asian Girl, by the Asian Girl.